Well, this morning I want to continue speaking on the series we started on the laws of God's harvest and the principles of of God's harvest laws. And um, today we are going to be on number three of four. And this law states it's the law of increase, meaning that one reaps more than they sow. Principle number one was I reap only if I sow, which is a law of investment. Second principle says, which is identity, says, I reap in like kind what I sow. Now the third principle says, law of increase says, I reap more than I sow. Going, going back at our farmer example, because that's one we can kind of relate to. Remember, before the farmer can reap next year's harvest, he must first plant the kernel of corn in the ground. And also, if he's planting corn then he can expect to reap corn in that field, not carrots. Okay, so that's the law of identity. Now, the third principle says that if the farmer plants a single kernel of corn, that he will reap multiple kernels from that single kernel of corn. And it is said that a single kernel of corn can harvest upwards of two to 3,000 kernels per one that's planted. So it's a significant increase in that one kernel. And doesn't it only make sense that there would be an increase? In other words, if, if the farmer is planting the kernel of corn only to expect to get another single kernel of corn, what's the purpose in the planting? What's the purpose in the sowing if he's going to get exactly what he put in? There is no future if there is no increase for the farmer or as we're going to see for our own lives. There is no future if there is no increase. So we have to understand how that principle works. Now, I've been using a little story, and um, I think it's important. I know that you're probably tired of me reading this little story. Thank goodness there's only four laws and not 24 laws. Um, but, uh, but this little story, again, I want to read it because it, 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 we can get premised information off of this because it helps us understand with a word picture. It says, A thirsty man crossing the desert stumbled upon a well with an old-fashioned hand-operated pump. Hanging on a pump handle was a small jar of water with a crude sign. Pour this water into the pump, and it will give you all the water you need. Then leave the jar full of water so the next traveler can prime the pump. The man was so thirsty that he was tempted to gulp down the water and ignore the sign. Finally, he decided to pour the water into the pump handle. Sure enough, after a few minutes, the water expanded the seal in the pump handle, and he began to pump up an ample supply of clear, cold water. He went away with his thirst quenched, his canteen filled, and the jar also filled for the next traveler. So there's that little story again, and the law of investment said that that he must pour the water in the pump, and uh, expect to get water out of the pump. And then the law of increase says, I'm going to get a lot more water out of the pump than what I put into the pump. Again, if all he was going to get was the same amount that he put in, he poured in, then what's the point? What's the point of taking the risk? Because there is a risk in investment. There is a risk of planting a kernel in the ground. There is a risk for that traveler of dumping that cold, clear water that he needed to drink so badly. There was a risk that the pump may not work. 
So there has, there has to be a significant upside. There has to be a significant reward in that, in that risk. In this story, the man wasn't prom If he wasn't promised more, much more than what he put in, it would have been a silly thing for him to do. But he believed the sign. And so by his obedient action of pouring into the pump so that the pump would properly prime, he reaped a harvest of water that not only quenched his thirst, but it also provided for the future. The two important words here that build off each other are obedient and action. Obedient action. If he would have just thought about it, if he would have done one of the two and not done them both together, it wouldn't have worked. So in all aspects of receiving from God and the laws that he has established for us, those two words work together, obedience and action. And we have to continue to put those together. Now, last week I, I ended the service uh, at the very end in, in the prayer that I, I gave. I ended the service with this comment that many people live all week long in a lifestyle of living, basically in two words, sowing, or three words, sowing wild oats. We all know what that means, right? Sowing wild oats, meaning that you're investing in something that you really don't want to reap. <laughs> it's, it's fun for the moment, but the, the, the outcome or the result of those wild oats will not be a righteous harvest. Many of us walk through life that way, sowing wild oats, investing throughout the week, only to come on Sunday morning and pray for crop failure, that it doesn't take root. And Billy Graham said that. I'm not original with this, with this thought. I'll be honest. I'm not original with it. But it's very true in that we will invest our lives throughout the week, and then when it comes to Sunday morning, we have a little guilt or we know it's not right, and then we pray, God, don't let that happen. Well, let me tell you what the law of increase does. The law of increase says it's going to take root it doesn't make any difference what you're sowing. If you're sowing to the evil, it will reap abundance of evil. It does, it's not just limited to the good things. The, the law of increase isn't just limited to godly things. The law of increase says whatever you sow, according with the law of identity, whatever you sow, you're going to get in like kind, and the law of increase says you're going to get a bunch of it. So if you're sowing to the sinful nature, you're going to reap in the sinful nature and the law of increase says you're going to reap a bunch of it. What do you want? Does that make any sense? Does that, does that make any sense that we would do that? So it doesn't make any difference what the kind of the seed is or what kind of seed it is. The law of increase says you're going to get a bunch more of it in the same identity that you sowed it. So, it makes, so it's important that we understand what kind of seed we're sowing. What are you doing? What are you spending your weekly time doing? What are you really investing into the kingdom or into your flesh? Because it's going to come to pass according to the law of increase. So doesn't it only make sense that we would want to invest ourselves into things that will give us an abundance of blessings versus an abundance of curses? Doesn't it only make sense that we would do that? See, an investment worth investing always has value prior to the investment. Make sense? An investment worth investing always has a value prior to the investment. You know, the old saying is it takes money to make money. 
You've got to put in something to get out something. If, if it didn't cost something of value, then you wouldn't reap anything of value. Think about it this way. Think about the corn example again. The, the kernel of corn has two purposes. Number one, it has nourishment for food, and it also is seed for future. If I could eat the kernel and plant the husk, wouldn't that be great? If I could eat the kernel and plant the cob and get more corn, wouldn't that be great? But I can't do that. I can't give God my junk and then expect him to reap back jewels. I can't give God my leftovers because I've already eaten the good things and then expect God to turn that into a godly harvest. So there is a cost to investment. There is a cost in our lives to making that investment. It doesn't work out that I can give God my leftovers. I can give God what I have left over of my monthly income and call that a tithe. The tithing aspect of giving is the first fruits. It's the best that you give to God. And then with that, God will take the multiplicity of it and he will multiply it out and return it back to you. I'm not giving him the husk. I'm giving the kernel. I'm giving him the thing that has value. And when I do that, I'm following Christ in a way that he would multiply it out for eternal blessings. And in a similar fashion, there's a cost to following Jesus. Now, we don't normally like to think of it that way. We, we like to think that salvation is a free gift, which it is. But part of the mystery of godliness is that there's always a dynamic of it that makes us scratch our heads and think about it. Because Jesus said that it is a free gift, but yet there's a cost to following Christ. Luke chapter 14 talks about this beginning in verse 25. It says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. We're talking about a law of increase here. We're talking about a law of investment here. See, this is something that becomes known to us as we begin our maturing process in our Christian life. This is not something that you would sit down with a new convert 
and you are trying to convert him to Christianity and say, well, be, wait, wait, before you accept Jesus, you know you're, giving, you know you're going to give everything up, don't you? <laughs> no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking to mature believers here. He's talking to people that have already professed Christ. And he's saying, guys, do you really understand what you're professing now? Do you really understand what this lifestyle is that you are claiming to live? And it's important that we understand that if we're going to be a victorious Christian, that we need to understand the true cost of the investment. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. See, and Christ was a perfect example of everything he talks about. Remember, Jesus would never ask you to do anything that he, first of all, hasn't already done or wouldn't give you the capability to do. Christ is a perfect example of how he gave up everything of himself for me. So now he's just saying the same thing of me to him. I've already given up all myself. I've already given up heaven. I've already given up the kingdom of heaven to come down to take on the form of man. And now I'm just asking you to do the same thing. I'm just asking you to do what I've already done so that now we can be on a common ground of investment. I've invested my all into you. Can you not invest your all into me? Doesn't that make it sound like a good trade? Doesn't that sound like it makes sense? See, the law of increase says that as I invest myself, God will increase himself in me so that I can become more Christ-like as I allow him to be in me. This law of investment works because Christ established it. He's saying, as you invest yourself into me, I'm going to bring the increase of my spirit my power into you so that you can live a Christian life. He's not expecting you to live it on your own. If you were living it on your own, it would be self-righteousness. It would be my own ability to be a man that I can't be because I can't live for Christ on my own. The only way I can live for Christ is if I have his power flowing through me, and we do that through the law of increase because the more that I give myself to Christ, the more he pours back into me through the power of the Holy Spirit, I then can live for him. And it's a very common circle that has to run and we have to work it together. Here's the rub that we have, and that is that we have free choice. I was born with a free choice. I was created with a free choice. And I will die with a free choice. My choices never end. Even after I become a Christian, God does not take my ability to choose away. I always will have the ability to choose right from wrong, even with the Spirit of Christ living in me. He never says when you become a Christian, you become a robot. He always gives us the power of choice. And so when we think of the laws of investment, think about the power of choice. God gives us all these laws, but along with that, he gives us still the power of choice in our life. And it's only as we are effectively applying the power of the choice in the Christ-like way is it being manifested in our life. Let's Think of it this way. I have 80 years to live or so on this world. If you're over 80, you've got 85. If you're over 85, you've got 90. I don't care. You've got so many years that you have to live in this world. 
And now you have a choice to make with those years. You can either choose to live in those years with all of the efforts of your life, finding the immediate satisfaction of life, and I can place all my energies on, on consuming the moment, living for all the gusto I can get, because I, I only live one time. You know, the old beer commercials, go for the gusto. You know, you live one time, and, and, and all, the, all of the, the, the worldly acclaim to, to get it all while you can. You know, the, the, the man that dies with the most toys wins, that, that type of mentality, that, that I can choose to put all my efforts on finding immediate satisfaction. Or I can choose to live with an eternal mindset with the understanding that as I live my life, I'm really investing my years of living into planting eternal seeds that will produce an, etern uh, a, a, an eternity of days to come. Now, here's the fact of the matter, is that we are planting eternal seeds, whether you're a Christian or not. You're planting eternal seeds that one day you will reap. One day you're either going to reap the bounty of a blessed life, the bounty of a holy life, the bounty of a sanctified, set-apart life, or you're going to reap the curses of a sinful nature and death and destruction. But you will reap what you sow. So if I can get that into my mind, if I can understand that, I can then be better to choose my days while I have life to live to make the wise investment. And what am I investing in? Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, for those of us that have trouble in this life, in case you might be going through trouble, here's some encouragement. He says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, or far outweighs the trouble. In other words, as you obediently, with action, plant the proper seeds, even in the midst of trouble in your life, those are achieving for you an eternal glory that will far outweigh the days that you live. See, and here's the thing that's so amazing about the reaping and sowing concept. First of all, no matter how my days go here, I can be having a great day. I mean, I can be having the best day I've ever experienced on this earth. And let me tell you, it won't even begin to compare with your worst day in heaven. I mean, we can't even begin to imagine what heaven is going to be like. We can't even imagine to begin the blissfulness, the carefreeness, the purpose, all of the bounty of heaven. We can't even begin to compare it because all we know of is the best that a sin-cursed world has to offer. And I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy this world. We should to the best that we can. But it will, it will not compare with the quality of heaven. Another thing that we have to understand is that, is that there's a quantity of days as well as a quality of days. Our quantity of 80 years of living is a few thousand days. Our eternity is a few billion trillion days. <laughs> Are you not willing to give up a few days here to gain an increase of multiplicity of billions of years there? I mean, think about it. If we could grasp the concept, if we could really understand what it means to sin, 
and what it means to say, when I do bad, I'm going to reap bad forever. I mean, there's no limit to this. It just doesn't make any sense. I wish we could just get in the common sense of people and make it so obvious to them, make it so physically obvious to them to say, you can have all you want, you can have the world, all the blessings of the world for 80 years, and then after 80 years you're going to go to eternal hell. Is that a good trade? I mean, I don't, I don't get it. But yet so often, though, we get caught in that. We say, oh, God, it's just not worth it. Well, go ask the man that took his last breath and then his first breath in eternity, whether it's in heaven or hell, and ask him then, was it worth it? Yeah. See, as I invest my life today, I'm looking forward to a harvest that lasts forever. You choose what harvest it is, but understand it's going to last forever. So going back to counting the cost, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciples. Now that we understand the extremity of that, we can now hopefully get ourselves set in a path to say, God, all right, you want my everything? I'll give it to you. I'll just, I'll cheerfully give it to you because I know how much more you're giving back to me. I wish we could always make it that easy, don't you? I mean, it sounds so good right now. You probably are agreeing with me right now. You're probably saying, yeah, I agree with that. But then there comes tomorrow the enjoyments of life and they, they, the, way they, the way they creep in on us. You see, there's a definition of enjoyment here, I think, that we need to look at because when we want to look at enjoying life, which perspective are we going to look at it from? If I look at enjoyment, enjoying life from a worldly perspective, from, a, from a, 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 a fleshly perspective, it gives me a certain definition. If I look at enjoyment from a godly perspective, it gives me a different definition. And most of the time, they don't intertwine. So many times the devil will take a good word and he'll twist it around and he'll make it into something that is perverted. And he'll take it and he'll, he'll abuse it. And that word joy has been abused because we look at joy as really happiness that comes from the moment, not joy that comes from the future. And when I can comprehend and grasp my joy is not based upon my moment, my joy is based on my future, it helps me make good decisions. It helps me to learn what it is to invest. See, in Proverbs chapter 14, it says that there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end leads to death. Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and rejoicing may end in grief. The faithless will be fully repaid for their ways, and a good rewarded for theirs. The simple believing anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-hearted and yet feels secure. See how deceived that is? The fool is, is hot-headed, but yet feels secure. Later in Proverbs chapter 16, the first two verses of that chapter says, To humans belong the plans of the heart, but from the Lord comes the proper answer of the tongue. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Isn't it become obvious now that the Lord really does have our best intention at heart? He really does want us to enjoy life, but not the way the world enjoys life. Not in consuming the moment, but in planning for the future. There's more joy in planning for the future than consuming the moment because once you consume the moment, it's over. 
It's done. How many of you can can reflect in your own heart where you've had a desire to get that new car, that new TV, that new computer, that new motorcycle, whatever it is. You, 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 You plan for it. You get it. You work hard, and then you get it, and it's not long, and you're bored with it. You've consumed the moment, but it doesn't give anything that fulfills you for long term. The joy of the Lord is not consuming the moment. The joy of the Lord is planning for the future, investing for the future, knowing that you're going to have a bigger increase in the end. Sowing leads to increase. It wouldn't make any sense to plant a seed only to think I'm going to get the same exact thing back. It, doesn't, it wouldn't be the same thing with our life. If I'm just planting one day to think that I'm going to get another day just like it, that's not an increase. That's why I said earlier in the service, I love the way God works differently every service. I love the way he brings an increase differently every service. See, God's law gives us assurance that we will reap much more than we sow. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6-7. through 7. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Wow. I love that part. God honors his promises to us as he gives us the ability to make the human choice. We're always part of the equation. We're always part of it. As I give to God with a cheerful heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but I give to God cheerfully, He blesses it. He blesses it. Now, why does God give us this? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10-11 through 11 says that, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. See, here it is. God is the giver of the seed in the first place. I didn't create the kernel. God created the kernel. He is the giver of who I am in the first place. He is the giver of my job. He is the giver of my sustenance. He is the giver of my health. He is the giver of everything that I have the power to invest. He's the giver of it. He's the provider of it. So as I recognize that he is the provider of my blessings, doesn't it only make sense that when I get an increase of something that he provided in the first place that I would willingly, cheerfully give it back? Doesn't it, and it wouldn't make any sense if I'm, since I'm not the originator of the seed in the first place, it's not mine. It's not mine to keep. It's not mine to hold on to because I wasn't the creator of that seed. If I was the creator of the seed, then it would be mine to keep. God's the creator of the seed. It's God's, and he's given it to us to be a proper steward of it, not to just to meet our needs, but that we can meet the needs of others so that when we invest and he gives us an, an increase in the investment, that we take what we get back and we continue to invest it. We continue to pour it out into other people. We don't become a hoarder. We don't become a dried-up pond. We don't become the place where it stops. We're the channel of blessing that as God continues to give me increase, I continue to pour back into his kingdom. And as we do that, then he continues to supply seed to the sower. 
He continues to provide my needs and my resources, not so that I can hoard it, not so far I can consume it, but that I can continue to invest it. And as I continue to invest, he continues to increase. Invest, increase, and I am just putting into people. And now I'm, I'm investing and increasing for this physical world, but more importantly, I'm investing for the eternal world. I'm investing where no thief or robber can, can, can sneak in and steal, no rust destroys, because I'm investing it in eternal treasures. Wow. That's why he gives it. So do you see a pattern here? Do you see understanding how God, God gives us the ability to, to, to harvest? He gives us the ability to reap. He gives us the ability to sow. And then he says, what do you want to harvest? What do you want to reap? Sow likewise. And then in that, I will give you the increase. As we get ready to conclude, here's the thing that I would... Brittany, if you'd come up. Brittany's going to play, with, play for us today, and then she's going to sing a song as we go into communion. But as a thing that, that I want us to realize as we think about what we have. Now, listen closely, because this may sound harsh, but listen to what the Lord says. I don't need anything you have. I don't need anything you have. Why? Because I gave it to you in the first place. (laughs) Because I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So don't think you're doing a big deal by giving me a big offering. No. Doesn't mean you don't give big offerings. Doesn't mean you don't do that, but you're not really getting into God's heart when you give to God something that it's already His. What we talked about at the beginning of the service, and what we're talking about now, is that what God really wants is your heart. What He really wants is something that 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 it's yours to give, because He gave you the choice to do with it what you will. You can choose to keep it, and He'll let you. He's not going to take it away from you. He's not going to come in and steal anything from you. He's only going to give or take what you give him. So when you give him a heart, joyfully, cheerfully, he's now receiving that and saying, Ah, that's it. That's the sweet spot. That's what I've been waiting for. That's it. That's the heart. And even though that God doesn't need what I have, I need what he has and the only way I can get what he has for me is to first give him what I have pretty amazing concept he doesn't need what I have but I need what he has I need it see God is urgently calling us this morning according to James chapter 4 Verse 2, he says, You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask, here it is, with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Wow, so important that we look at the motives of our heart. God is urgently calling us this morning, are we a friend of his or are we a friend of the fleeting and tempting desires of the world that come and go so quickly? And God's saying, you know, I, I really 
want you to invest in me. The question for us this morning is, are we? Are we investing in the things of eternity? Are we? As we move into the communion time, I I, want to make this analogy because this is perfectly the example of reaping, sowing in the area of increase. Romans chapter 5 tells us in numerous passages, it says this, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all of sin. But it came through one man. And then he goes on and says, But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, the one man is Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Sin, death, came in by one man that affects all men. Talk about an investment and an increase. One man made a mistake, and the harvest of his mistake is sin for all men, death for all men. And then Jesus comes on the scene later in Romans here. says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience as the one man, the many were made sinners, so also, here's that word, through the obedience... Of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Jesus lived by the same laws that we do. Obedience and action come together, and his obedient act of of dying on the cross, taking up our sin, is why we have eternal life. He's a perfect example of the increase. Adam sowed to the flesh and reaped death multiple times over. Jesus sowed to the spirit and reaped life multiple times over. Amen. We're going to prepare for communion this morning, and uh, Brit's going to, Brittany's going to sing a song for us. And, and as she sings, would you prepare your heart and, uh, and just take some time for self-reflection and say, Lord, you know, deal with me, Father. Open my heart up. Let me see where I'm reaping and sowing. Let me get a good understanding of what seeds I've been planting. Am I planting spiritual seeds or am I planting earthly, fleshly seeds of the flesh? And then after she sings, then we're going to have communion.
taking the cup and the bread and let me just read this passage to you in Hebrews it says that therefore since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of faith for the joy set before him he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God that word joy just doesn't seem to fit there. Here Jesus is getting ready to sacrifice his life for us. But it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You know, we've been talking about how our giving should be with a cheerful heart. And when you go look up in the context of the Hebrew and look at the two words here, cheerful of a cheerful giver, and the joy set before him, those words are very similar in meaning. The passage talks about giving when we give without grudging or without second thoughts. When I give in the offering, when I give of myself, the cheerfulness of my heart says, I'm going to give it to you, Father, with a cheerful heart. I'm not going to grudgingly give this to you. 
I'm not going to have second thoughts after I've done it. I'm just giving it to you out of a cheerful heart. And in this passage, for the joy that's set before him, it's really saying the same thing. Jesus is saying, I'm giving up my life for you today, and I'm rejoicing. I have happiness. I have gladness. I'm overjoyed. I'm not grudgingly giving you my life, and I'm not having any second regrets. That's the joyfulness of giving to the Lord. And Jesus became our best example of it. And now we're celebrating that this morning as we take communion and as we share in the body of Christ. And this is is something that we do on a regular basis, but I don't ever want it to become commonplace. We do this 12 times a year. Maybe more if we do it on a holiday or we do it on another something other occasion, but I don't want ever ever don't want this act of sharing in the Lord's table to ever be commonplace. Don't ever say, "Oh, it's Communion Sunday again." Just think about the privilege we have in sharing in the body of Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you: the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And saying, I'm breaking my body for you. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. As you take the, blood, the, the bread and you hold it up, and as you look at it, and, and look at that as a broken piece of bread, it symbolizes the broken body of Christ. And everything that he suffered and died for for you is for your gain today. That investment that he put on the cross, you're reaping multiplicity of harvest in the way it applies it to your body. Amen. Father, thank you for this bread. Thank you, Father. Lord, as we partake now, we honor you, Jesus. We remember you, and we thank you for your investment in us. Amen. Let's partake together of the bread. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Folks, we are that close to the coming of the Lord. I believe every time we have communion, this could be our last time. I really believe that. We proclaim the Lord's death. Father, the blood that you gave us, the blood that you shed for us, that you joyfully gave it. You endured the cross. You went through the pain. You went through all of the suffering, but yet you did so because you were joyfully positioning us today. You were doing so because you knew that as you invested yourself, as you planted yourself by being obedient to death and the resurrection that you are giving us a harvest today of our salvation and our privilege of coming to you this day that we would have an eternity with you. God, I can't thank you enough for that. Lord, I can't thank you enough. My jaw drops for that, Lord. It, it drops for that more than it drops for that $10,000 check. God, that you would do that for us. It's an amazing thing. God, help us never to be complacent about that. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us never to 
to let the joy of that ever become dull for us. Father, we honor you now as we drink this cup in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's partake together. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's just take a couple minutes now and just praise the Lord. Thank Him. Thank Him for His infinite goodness. Thank Him for what He has done for us. Thank You for the, for the investment of righteousness that He has poured into the world so that we now can have redemption of our sins. What a blessing. Amen. Amen. Brittany, would you sing and uh, just lead us out? And we're just going to go out rejoicing if you would just sing for us. One more song, if you can, and uh, we're just going to rejoice in the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your grace. Got it. 